The hearing will come to order. I apologize for being late. It's one of those days where you start late and you wind up late. Uh, really an impressive panel, and what brings us here is we had the 10th outbreak of uh, the second largest in, uh, <clears throat> in the DRC, the Republic of Congo, uh, in areas that have been sated without a doubt have been conflict zones. This is sort of the worst case situation. There is no governance in these places. It's a war-torn region. Thousands have been killed and displaced. In the middle of all this mess, you have an Ebola outbreak with a whole lot, without a whole lot of governance to deliver relief. And this hearing is gonna focus on what we can do and should do and what are the consequences of doing nothing. And I just appreciate Senator Kane very much being a good partner. And I'll introduce the, the panel after your opening statement. Great, thank you, Mr. Chair, and thanks to all the witnesses. Um, the chair and I talked about doing this hearing after a, a hearing six weeks or so ago with uh, USAID Administrator Mark Green. Um, and it is very, very timely. He talked about the need for us to focus more on this. And one week ago today, the World Health Organization, uh, after an Ebola case was discovered in the city of Goma, declared the outbreak, this outbreak of Ebola, a public health emergency of international concern. For those who don't follow the WHO terminology, they've just done this five times in their history. Has there been an outbreak of such significance that they have declared it a public health emergency of international concern? The earlier instances were a polio virus in 2014, swine flu in 2009, Ebola in West Africa in 2014, and the Zika outbreak in 2016. So it, it, this was an outbreak that started, I believe, in August of 2018 in, in Uganda and the DRC, um, but it is now uh, significantly affected 1,700 deaths, more than 1,700 deaths, 2,600 cases, um, and so the WHO has now weighed in, and we have to decide what to do about it, what the U.S. can do in tandem with other partners. The chairman made a good point. Um, this is a public health emergency, but the solution is not just a healthcare solution because we're dealing with conflict, we're dealing with failed democracy, we're dealing with, you know, uh, failed systems, and so how do we how do we, in that situation, deal with this significant health emergency? The answer will be broader than just uh, narrow health. Um, certainly, health expertise and creativity is going to be part of it, but it's going to have to be bigger than that. And so the idea today is to hear from each of you in your own areas of expertise and get your advice for what we can do uh, in Congress to be helpful. So thank you, Mr. Chair. Look forward to the hearing today. Thank you. And to put a fine point on what Senator Kane said, this is a case study, Exhibit A, as to why you can't withdraw from the world. To those who believe that things over there are not our problem over here, you're gonna learn pretty quickly that when it comes to diseases like this, if you don't get ahead of it, you're gonna regret it. And this is not just about a medical problem, this is a governance problem, this is a whole of government problem. So when you start cutting developmental budgets, you're gonna get more of this, not less. So every time I hear somebody wanting to cut foreign assistance, which is 30-something billion dollars of a $4 trillion budget, I keep thinking, what world are you looking at? So that's my commercial for our committee. <laughs> so uh, to people who know what they're talking about far more than I do when it comes to Ebola, we're gonna start uh, with Dr. Mitch Wolf, a medical doctor, chief medical officer, Center for Disease Control and Prevention, U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. He's the technical and medical lead for the response. We have Red Admiral Tim Zemer, 
USN retired senior deputy assistant administrator Bureau for Democracy, Conflict, Humanitarian Assistance, USAID, uh, providing assistance to the UN and NGOs fighting Ebola. Uh, the Honorable Marsha. Marsha. Bernicott. <laughs> Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary, Bureau of Oceans and International Environmental and Scientific Affairs, U.S. Department of State, uh, focuses on, she's the lead for the interagency and diplomatic response. And finally, Assistant Secretary uh, Tiber Naj. Bureau of African Affairs, U.S. Department of State, will focus on the regional political aspects of Ebola. Let's start with Dr. Wolf. Good afternoon, Chairman Graham, Ranking Member Kane, and members of the subcommittee. I'm Dr. Mitch Wolf, Chief Medical Officer of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. I'm a Rear Admiral in the U.S. Public Health Service, and I've worked with the Department of Health and Human Services for 21 years, 18 of those with CDC, including 10 years overseas in Vietnam and Thailand, working on addressing infectious disease threats and helping to build the capacity for countries to address these threats at their source. Thank you for the opportunity to update you on the Ebola outbreak in the DRC and outline what CDC is doing to prevent, detect, and respond to this and other emerging global health threats. CDC's efforts are grounded in over 40 years of Ebola research and more than 20 Ebola outbreak responses. I wanna emphasize our goal is to end this outbreak as soon as possible. This Ebola outbreak first reported in the DRC in August 2018 is continuing to spread. As of July 24th, there are a total of 2,597 cases and 1,743 deaths, with recent cases in Goma and Uganda. The outbreak now encompasses 25 health zones in the DRC, and in the past 21 days, we've seen 253 active cases in 19 health zones. Of these cases, about a third were known and monitored contacts, and even more concerning, roughly 30% were cases identified as community deaths that occurred outside of the healthcare system. A substantial percentage of cases were acquired in healthcare settings and 137 healthcare workers have been infected. In light of this regional spread, last week WHO's Director General declared the DRC Ebola outbreak a public health emergency of international concern. This is the first outbreak in DRC that's occurring in a densely populated area that has also experienced decades of continuing conflict and civil unrest. DRC has reported nine previous outbreaks of Ebola, but the two currently affected provinces have never experienced an Ebola outbreak and have busy, porous borders with Uganda, Rwanda, and South Sudan. These challenges make this outbreak extremely difficult to contain and it is not yet under control at this time. Over the course of this outbreak, we've deployed 204 experts from CDC to the DRC and neighboring countries and WHO headquarters. And for the past several months, CDC has deployed staff to GOMA in support of surveillance, vaccination, border health, and risk communication. CDC scaled up efforts following the announcement of the first Ebola case in Goma, and our staff are working directly with responders on the ground there to assist with core public health interventions. Availability of an Ebola vaccine is a new development since the West Africa outbreak. CDC is actively working with the WHO, providing technical support for the vaccination program, and over 165,000 people in DRC have been vaccinated. While vaccine is important and has likely had a mitigating effect on the outbreak, Vaccination complements but does not replace basic and critical public health response activities, such as contact tracing and rapid identification and isolation of ill patients. Based on experience from previous outbreaks, an effective response depends on early case identification and effective isolation of about 70% of all cases, 
and sustaining this for several months. The fact that we're seeing so many cases discovered as community deaths means that we are missing contacts and missing the chains of transmission that must be identified to bend the curve of the outbreak. CDC's work in this outbreak reflects our extensive expertise in disease control to inform the response. And CDC works in three main avenues organizationally in this outbreak, providing direct assistance to the DRC Ministry of Health in Kinshasa and in Goma, where the incident command is located, with the WHO in Geneva, and as the public health lead in the Disaster Assistance Response Team, or DART. Our work with border countries focuses on their ability to quickly identify, isolate, and effectively respond to a possible case of Ebola. The rapid Ugandan containment of three imported Ebola cases in June of this year is a demonstration of the effectiveness of these preparedness efforts, which also build on CDC's long-term involvement in disease detection response training and capacity development in Uganda supported by global health security investments. While this outbreak continues to be an urgent situation in the region, the current risk to America remains low. The most effective way to protect America from emerging threats is to stop outbreaks at their source before they <coughs> reach our borders. CDC continues to improve the public health workforce abroad, having trained over 12,000 public health professionals now in 70 countries. More than 260 of these professionals are from the DRC and many are responding to this outbreak. CDC is committed to this response and will continue to position our assets globally to quickly respond to emerging threats and disease hotspots around the world. Thank you for your continued commitment and support to CDC and our critical global health security mission. Chairman Graham, Ranking Member Kane, members of the subcommittee, thanks very much for this opportunity to speak to you about the U.S. response to this Ebola outbreak. Senator Graham, you've already summarized the challenge. This dead, deadly virus has appeared in one of the most insecure areas of the world, endangering lives of people made vulnerable by deadly violence and contributing uh, to the population's distrust of outsiders. It's really a perfect storm. Reaching affected communities with proven and tested health interventions has been undermined and interrupted by attacks on healthcare workers. Over the last couple of days, 14 deaths were reported, not all on healthcare workers. While most, mostly contained in two provinces, the Ebola outbreak is now a regional issue, as punctuated by the World Health Organization's declaration of the public health emergency. USAID has been at the front, forefront of this response since the outbreak began. With the additional $38 million that we announced today, USAID's contribution to the Ebola response is $136 million. Our partners have strengthened infection prevention and control in over 360 health facilities and dispensaries, trained more than 19,000 healthcare workers, patient screening, isolation, and triage, and have reached over 2.1 million people with key health messages. As the lead coordinator of the U.S. government response in DRC, supporting Ambassador Hammer, the DART team works very, very closely with CDC, the State Department, and our other government agencies. I traveled to DRC in May, followed quickly by the trip by Administrator Green that you mentioned. Our visits confirmed while, that, while a lot has happened, a shift in strategy was needed. And I'm pleased to say that reset is underway, and it takes a more comprehensive humanitarian approach. With strong leadership from Ambassador Hammer and coordinated efforts across the entire interagency, the reset is supporting a greater cross-border response. And it's also 
strengthening the health response and tightening financial accountability and transparency. Progress is being made. The emphasis on border surveillance and local capacity has helped quickly contain the uh, virus as illustrated by the cases that popped up in Uganda a couple weeks ago. So in the last several weeks, other significant adjustments have been made, such as the assignment of Mr. David Gressley as the UN Emergency Ebola Response Coordinator to preside over the entire coordination and leadership of the response. We're expecting the release of the new strategy in a couple weeks that aligns the humanitarian objectives with the public health efforts. This strategy will set funding requirements which the U.S. government will use to solicit increased funding and burden sharing from other governments. So in the near term, cases will likely increase, but we expect that the approaches outlined in the reset will help DRC turn the tide and contain this deadly virus. So in the long term, through the global health security agenda that Admiral uh, Mitch Wolf just mentioned, USAID will continue to work with CDC as well as the Department of State and other agencies to build the capacities of countries to prevent, detect, and respond to future outbreaks. A threat anywhere is a threat everywhere, and we're committed to containing this outbreak and other outbreaks at the source. So we're working closely with our interagency partners in a very coordinated effort to bring our funding, our technical assistance, and all the U.S. government resources to bear. To bring this outbreak to an end is a challenge, but it's not insurmountable. So thanks for your time, most importantly for your interest in calling this hearing and for your leadership. And we look forward to answering your questions. Chairman Graham, Ranking Member Kane, distinguished members of the committee, thank you for inviting me here to speak today. I am honored to appear as part of a team of officials and colleagues who represent the whole of government approach that the United States brings to the Ebola response. The ongoing Ebola outbreak in the Democratic Republic of Congo is the second largest in human history. For nearly a year, brave responders with strong U.S. support have been working to stop Ebola's spread and treat the ill. Their efforts have saved countless lives, but new cases continue to emerge. We are now at a critical juncture. Ebola cases continue to rise, Ebola patients continue to die, and local communities and responders have not been taking all the necessary steps to end the outbreak. And in some cases, as we've noted, communities are actively, even violently, resisting Ebola response efforts. The risk of Ebola spreading to additional areas of the DRC or neighboring countries remains high, as demonstrated by the three confirmed cases in Uganda in early June and the case in Goma last week. At the same time, there is reason for hope. The DRC and neighboring governments are taking action to prevent Ebola cases, detect possible infections, and respond quickly to treat patients. The World Health Organization and the United Nations are improving coordination with non-governmental organizations and local communities. And the United States, as it has since the first Ebola cases emerged, continues to take a leading role to end the outbreak. As you noted, Senator Graham, ending this outbreak is not only a global health security priority, it is a U.S. national security priority. 
And as my colleague said, an infectious disease threat anywhere can be an infectious disease threat everywhere, as we saw vividly in 2014. The United States government is firmly committed to stopping this pandemic. We are the largest single country donor, and we have continuously deployed staff to the <coughs> DRC and neighboring countries to enable a more effective response. Our whole of government approach is critical to stopping this outbreak, <coughs> excuse me, which is occurring in the midst of a complex humanitarian crisis and tremendous secur security challenges from local armed groups. The government of the DRC and the WHO have led the response since the first cases emerged nearly a year ago. Government officials in Uganda, Rwanda, Burundi, and South Sudan have also demonstrated leadership by increasing preparedness efforts to prevent, detect, and respond to Ebola cases. And the United Nations designation of David Gressley as UN Emergency Ebola Response Coordinator on May 23rd is enhancing the response coordination and addressing the broader humanitarian and security conditions impacting the response. The World Bank has, has provided significant resources and helped ensure financial accountability of response efforts. Other core donors include the United Kingdom and the European Union. And NGO staff and the Congolese citizens themselves are the backbone of the on-the-ground response efforts to identify and treat Ebola patients and their contacts. The State Department has also raised international awareness of the DRC Ebola outbreak and is encouraging the international community to fully fund the response. We convened a meeting of the uh, DC Diplomatic Corps on June 14, where USAID, CDC, and State Department officials briefed on the outbreak's trajectory and underlined the urgent need for funds. On July 14, the DRC government and World Health Organization released a partial new response plan requesting $287 million over the next six months to fund the public health response alone. Additional appeals for support in other sectors beyond health are forthcoming. The State Department and our embassy's country teams are regularly engaging our foreign um, counterparts uh, from the DRC to the WHO to the uh, DRC's neighbors at the highest levels to make the Ebola response a priority and to enhance coordination across governments and donors. Thank you for your time, your consideration, and your interest. I welcome the opportunity to respond to your questions. Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member, and distinguished members, thank you for the opportunity to testify today on the State Department Bureau of African Affairs efforts to combat the ongoing Ebola outbreak in Eastern Democratic Republic of the Congo. This panel serves as a reminder that the Ebola response is a whole of U.S. government effort, and I'm grateful that my colleagues and I are in this fight. My remarks today briefly summarize a longer and more detailed statement which was previously submitted for the record. The Ebola outbreak in Eastern DRC, now declared by the World Health Organization to be a public health emergency of international concern, continues to devastate the region. The DRC successfully handled nine previous Ebola outbreaks with capacity and expertise built up over decades, close cooperation with the United States. However, this 10th outbreak, now the second longest in history, is different as it is in a conflict zone. Eastern DRC is not new to instability. 
Longstanding regional and local tensions fueled wars that killed millions in the 1990s and 2000s. Clashes persist to this day in Ituri and North Kivu, where the Ebola outbreak continues to spread. Local populations have faced decades of armed group attacks, food insecurity, poverty, outbreaks of measles, cholera, other diseases. The recent surge of international attention on the Ebola response stands in stark contrast to a record of neglect on these other problems. This glaring dichotomy has led local militia and frustrated community members to lash out and target at healthcare facilities and workers. It underscores more than ever the necessity of engaging communities and local leaders to garner buy-in for the response. <clears throat> the United States is working closely with the DRC government, UN, and WHO on this response. The historic transfer of power to President Felix Chisikedi in January opened a new chapter in the US-DRC bilateral relationship. With President Chisikedi, we are optimistic that we have a willing partner, receptive to US and international support to contain the outbreak. Embassy Kinshasa is fully engaged in supporting the entire US government response in the DRC. The Kinshasa team has not only kept up with increasing policy and logistical demands from the Ebola outbreak, but also accelerated its diplomatic outreach, oversight, and reporting. The embassy has expanded its operations to support a surge of US temporary duty personnel <clears throat> to Kinshasa and Goma, where we did not previously have an established presence. Ambassador Hammer has proactively supported a constant stream of high-level visitors to increase attention and demonstrate US commitment to this response. From our embassy in Kinshasa, we engage in diplomacy across the entire country, which in distance stretches almost from my driveway in West Texas to here in Washington, DC. At the same time, our embassies Bujumbura, Juba, Kampala, Kigali have consistently urged the most senior members of their host governments to strengthen efforts to prevent the outbreak spread. Burundi, South Sudan, Uganda and Rwanda are vulnerable to the spread of Ebola and must remain vigilant. Evidenced by recent cases in Uganda and Goma City, a major transportation hub. The existing humanitarian crisis and Ebola outbreak has already caused tremendous harm to Congolese people and threats to the broader region. Our response must address the complex underlying factors exacerbating the outbreak and impede its spread. The Bureau of African Affairs is here to offer the full suite of diplomatic tools to assist Congo and facilitate the work of our partners. Thank you for your time and consideration, and I look forward to your questions. Well, thank you all very much. Um, this may be one of the hearings that they play the tape back down the road, uh, and I hope not. So, Dr. Wolf, give us sort of the ABCs of Ebola for those who are not as informed as they should be, beginning with me. What causes it, how deadly is it, and why does it keep reoccurring here? Sure, Ebola is endemic in many parts of Africa. It is endemic in um, bats and in non-human primates. It's very difficult to predict when outbreaks will happen. Um, it has an incubation period of two to 21 days, normally between eight and 10 days, and has uh, severe symptoms with vomiting, diarrhea, hemorrhagic symptoms, and has a very high mortality. Well, thank you. Uh, uh, Admiral, a national security issue is not much of a leap here. 
tell us how the whole of government approach, the governance part of it, is essential to solving this problem. Because as I understand it, you've got members of parliament basically telling people not to be vaccinated, and there's a real effort to chill out health care here. Yeah, senators, uh, Senator, there's many complicating factors. The role of the government in DRC in transition and their ability to influence mm -hmm. the work on the ground is questionable. Uh, in terms of the U.S. approach, we do have a well-coordinated approach to that. Uh, as I, uh, as I have monitored this, uh, but didn't you say 35 healthcare facilities were attacked? Uh, more than that, sir. Since the beginning of the year. So who who's doing the attacking? Uh, there are over an estimated 70 to uh, 90 armed groups that vary from uh, structure to gangs to just youth members. So there's a variation of the type of. Uh, activity that is imposing threats. Are they, are they looting the facilities or just out? Burning, for... intimidating the healthcare workers. Uh, they they have uh, gone in and damaged the Ebola treatment units. Are there any African Union forces present? Uh, in in many cases, there are, uh, and local security as well. So the security footprint has to be enhanced, right? Yes, sir. What are we doing to enhance the security footprint? Uh, part of the coordination effort that David Gressley is overseeing is to uh, leverage the existing security. Well, what is it? What is the existing security? Yeah. It's the use of government troops as well as the Menisco troops. I mean, do, do they have a real army to use, yeah, Mr. Nash? The security presence has provided uh, several different layers. First, we have the United Nations Forces, MONUSCO. They have about 20,000 forces throughout the DRC. In the actual Ebola zone, they have about 3,000. Uh, this gentleman we've been talking about, David Gressley, his previous assignment was to head uh, MONUSCO. Now he's gone over as the chief UN coordinator. Are these 3,000 troops effective? Uh, 3,000 troops. They're about as effective as they can be, given the circumstance. I had a conversation this morning with our ambassador, and he was actually in the Ebola zone. And I asked him the very same question, and he said that with the recent reset, he's much more optimistic than he has been in the past because of the whole new approach of engaging the villagers. Uh, the fundamental problem in the past, I think we all alluded to it, Senator, was this huge um, decades of mistrust that have been built up between the communities and any outside government force. That seems to me as big a problem as Ebola. Ab absolutely. That, that's why the complexity that everybody has been talking about, it, it, it's like a house of cards. Right. Everything impacts everything else. Well, let's sir. just talk about the security. We, our, our colleagues will be able to ask you about I want to know about this new government. We have hope. Is that correct? Yes. Pr uh, President Chisicati's new government. Yes, sir. Do you agree with that, Ms. Spinnerkat? Uh, yes, I do, sir. He has um, visited Washington, D.C. and met with Secretary Azar. Um, he visited the affected area. Um, he has allowed for the return of one of the political exiles who, from the region who actually came back to the region, um, very publicly received a vaccine. And so he's begun to show leadership 
in ways that we had not so seen by the previous What can we do to help him that we're not doing on the security front? All right. I, I, one other aspect that I think is worth pointing out on the security front is that there are any number of people who have distrust of all individuals wearing military or police uniforms. Yeah, I understand that. Right? So, exactly. So, um, we have that, that very, the government has that very difficult dilemma of how to increase security without increasing distrust. Um, putting more boots on the ground in many cases in the answer is, is the answer. In this case, it can be a complicating factor. Do we have any U.S. forces involved? No. Do we need U.S. forces involved? No. No, everybody agrees with that? Okay, so we've got a new partner. He's doing things that we like. Um, from a Congress's point of view, from the Senate's point of view, I think everybody up here wants to help you. Give us a very uh, quick shopping list of the things we can do to help you in this cause that we're not doing. Not all at once. <laughs> yes, Mr. Naj. I wish money could help in this regard, but the truth is I think that more than anything else, time is going to help. Uh, he is having to undo the tremendous damage done by his predecessors. Uh, for the first time, we've had President Chisicati come to us and say that he wants to engage with the United States as partners well, we for his security. We just need to thank him and encourage him to keep doing what he's doing. Pardon me, sir? We need to thank him and encourage him to do what he's doing. Absolutely. All right, uh, Dr. Wolf, you said before it's not a threat to the United States at this moment. What would make it a threat to the United States? Yes, Senator. Currently, the risk to the U.S. is low. We analyze transmission dynamics of the epidemic, and every time that when there's a change in the epidemic, we do a risk ass assessment and look at the strategy that matches that risk assessment. Currently, we believe that um, addre addressing the outbreak at its source is the best way to prevent spread, but and we have many activities to prevent the spread. My question is, what would be the conditions that would make it a threat to the United States? What are we afraid of? There are many different scenarios, and so the best way to control the outbreak is to, the best way to, to prevent spread is to assess the situation and do a risk assessment and look at what strategy is necessary at that time. We have a number of activities that are looking at um, screening on the border, screening well, at airports. Will you tell this committee when it gets to be a higher threat? How do we know? We all tell us. Absolutely. So when we do the risk assessments and look at the strategy, we will let you know what our strategy is and okay. what, you know, what needs to be done. Senator King. Dr. Wolf, I'm going to stay with you. You used a phrase in your testimony, community deaths, that I'm not familiar with. Are these deaths that occur not in healthcare facilities, so it's a little hard to track them? Or what does community deaths mean? That's correct, Senator. So these are deaths that we identify Ebola in somebody who is dead. That means that they were not identified when they were a case. And what's going to control this outbreak is the rapid identification I hear you. and isolation of cases. Let me ask about vaccination. Uh, over 160,000 people have been vaccinated um, against Ebola as of July 15, and that includes more than 31,000 health workers. I gather that the vaccination is somewhat experimental. And I also understand that just in the last week, the health minister of the DRC has resigned. Um, largely, I, as I gather, there's sort of a dispute about is this fact, you know, or 
which vaccine should be used, should both vaccines be used. To have a health minister resign in this situation obviously is a significant challenge. Um, talk a little bit about what that means and what we're doing, if anything, to help provide, promote stability in the health ministry there. That may be a question more for the State Department side. Sure. Uh, Senator, um, yes, indeed, the minister has resigned because the president was moving away from him. The president had appointed a, a special Ebola coordinator reporting directly to the president, a Dr. Moyembe, who has himself been involved with these Ebola emergencies going back to the initial one in 1976. There's going to be a new health minister anyway when the entire new government is announced, hopefully this next week, sir. So you, you do not view that resignation as a problem. In fact, it may actually be an improvement in the situation. Is that yes, sir, it may be an improvement to the situation. Um, my understanding is that Rwanda and Burundi as neighboring nations, they've not dealt with Ebola outbreak before. So as we're looking at neighbors, some have dealt with it, some haven't. What is your assessment of, of the capacity and preparation among neighboring nations to deal with the outbreak? Should it uh, my colleagues can also chime in on that. But from our point of view, uh, Uganda and Rwanda are in very good shape to be able to deal with it. The uh, disaster would be as if it got to South Sudan with the large refugee populations there, the totally disorganized, dysfunctional, non-existent government. That could be a disaster. And that goes back to the question that the chairman was asking, Dr. Wolf. The, th the things we would need to worry about are, are um, you know, travel or people moving into other countries, especially into, into places that are fairly chaotic, and then that could... Uh, lead to transmission to all kinds of places, including the United States. Is that a fair concern? Since the outbreak started, we have augmented our presence in the neighboring countries to work on, prep on uh, preparedness activities with those countries. S some countries are better prepared than others. In Uganda, we've worked there for many years. It highlights the importance of work on global health security and the global health security agenda, which is a U.S. government effort and a multinational effort to build capacity of countries to prevent, detect, and respond to infectious disease threats. And, and this is sort of a sweet spot for this committee, because this committee is not just a subcommittee on Africa, it's also the subcommittee on global health policy. So that's why this is sort of a little bit of a textbook um, uh, problem for us to resolve and then use as a template. Tell us about the status of the vaccine. So there's vaccines that are sort of experimental, I mean, are the, are the vaccines proven? Talk about the quality of the vaccine in terms of dealing with this, and then talk about quantities. Is there, is there sufficient vaccine? Do, do, do we need dramatically more? Share that with us. So evidence suggests that the investigational vaccine that's being used has efficacy to protect against Ebola, and we feel that it has had a mitigating effect on this outbreak. And this is the vaccine that's a Merck product? Correct. There's a second vaccine that's a Johnson & Johnson product that hasn't yet been used in the DRC, is that correct? Correct. We provide technical assistance to WHO and Ministry of Health to look at all available resources, and we've been pushing for an aggressive vaccination uh, campaign. I want to highlight that the Ministry of Health is in charge of the epidemic, and they have decided that uh, they don't, they're not ready to use that vaccine. Talk to us about the available quantity of the vaccine uh, in terms of trying to meet the challenge. Yeah, our goal is to ensure that there is sufficient vaccine to address this outbreak. I know that's the goal, but yeah. give, give yourself a grade on that one right now. Are we at a, are we at a, you know, C minus, or do we have the, you know, are we at an A? Do we have sufficient uh, quantity? We currently have sufficient quantity to address the outbreak. I do not have the additional information on numbers. We could get back with you on that. Admiral Zimmer. There are oh. over 
there are over 800,000 doses between now and March of 2020 that are in the pipeline. So based on the use and the scale-up strategy, we're watching that very closely. I do know that HHS is working very closely at production schedules and production line to look at future requirements. When this Ebola outbreak is ended, the use of a vaccine is clearly going to be an essential tool. So uh, Secretary Azar and his team is looking at that. Um, talk to us a little bit uh, about the community resistance. So I know that with political turmoil, uh, contested elections, is the community resistance connected to political factions, political divides, or, uh, you know, uh, rumors that were spread about what the vaccine does or doesn't do? Share that with us a little bit. Okay. Yes, sir. It's all of the above. Uh, part of it is historical because uh, historically, anytime you see somebody in a uniform, they're there to kill you, rob you, or rape you. Uh, the various different militias, the misery and the lack of development that has been in that region now almost since independence. And part of the community's thinking is, okay, we've been through decades of malaria and poverty and abuse, and all of a sudden there's this new disease and we have all these Westerners showing up with all their resources because they tell us it's so important. Uh, it, it, partially, we had the same thing in West Africa, partially, but it's so much more intense here mm -hmm. because of the horrendous abuse that that population has been through. And the succeeding governments in the DRC, which just did not care at all about their population, especially that isolated part of the DRC. Right. Thank, thank you, Mr. Chair. Uh, I think uh, the last, uh, the first vote is about to end. Do you want to adjourn uh, voting, come right back? Is that okay, or do you want to keep going? I think we need to vote. What do you want to do, Chris? Well, the, the first vote's over, so they're, they're holding it for us. So why don't we vote and come right back, so we'll be back in about 15, 20 minutes. Thanks. We'll, uh, we'll get the hearing started up again. Senator Graham is on his way back and said we could go ahead and, and continue. Senator Menendez will question next. Uh, thank, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you all for your testimony. Uh, doctor, disease knows no borders or boundaries. Is that fair to say? Yes, that's correct. That's how we use the phrase that disease, diseases know no boundaries and a threat anywhere could be a threat everywhere. So even though you're in answer to the chairman's question, you said it's a low risk right now, obviously a greater outbreak of the Ebola virus produces a greater risk, just one flight away, right, from someone who's contaminated before they show the symptoms. Yes, sir. Some of the things we look at are the transmission dynamics in the area and what the uh, response capability is and also what the travel patterns are from the areas of mm -hmm. the outbreak. So that's something we're constantly and My assessing. point in just raising that is that this is about more than being a good uh, global partner. Uh, we have self-interest here uh, as well. So uh, um, it seems to me that the major obstacle to uh, containing the Ebola outbreak in the Eastern Democratic Republic of the Congo appears to be the lack of adequate access to the affected communities. And the decades of insecurity coupled with political marginalization has resulted in conditions where not only are healthcare workers unable to reach areas subject to militia attack, uh, the very communities that, are trying to have, that we're trying to have access to have rejected health interventions, uh, even attacking and killing healthcare workers. 
The U.S. intervention in West Africa during the Ebola crisis of 2014 was, I think, instrumental in stopping its spread. However, in the DRC, the U.S. has to date been unable to provide a full suite of interventions. The administration, for example, refused for months to issue a waiver for sanctions imposed on the DRC as a result of the DRC's Tier 3 ranking under the Trafficking Victims Protection Act. Uh, USAID briefed committee staff in May on plans for engaging with communities to assess basic needs they may have in addition to Ebola, both in the healthcare sector and beyond as an improved strategy for gaining access to these communities. It's no good to have uh, you go to a, a healthcare center, you may not have Ebola, but you have some other significant disease and you can't be treated. People don't necessarily find that a reason then to go. Uh, so actions that until very recently could not be fully uh, undertaken due to the Trafficking Victims Protection Act sanctions, which were never really meant for that purpose uh, as one of those who were fully engaged in the TVPA. So let me, which brings me to my questions. Uh, Admiral, uh, is any of the fiscal year 2018 funding that was being held by the administration now being used to fund USAID's strategy to go beyond the health sector so as to provide health workers with better access to these communities? Yeah, Senator, thanks for the question. And first of all, I just want to thank you and the other members for your strong support in this area. It's very much appreciated. Uh, the current investment that has been made by the U.S. government and USAID, the $136 million, has not been affected by uh, TVPA. I believe you and your staff are aware of that. The interagency is reviewing the uh, implication of TVPA, particularly uh, as a result of this outbreak and the implications, not only in uh, DRC, but also in Burundi and South Sudan, which are on the Tier 3 list. And uh, we expect uh, to hear a resolution on that uh, very, very soon. And uh, we'll keep you and your staff posted. So, so 2018 funding that was being held, is it being used now or not? Uh, no, sir, not all of it. Not all of it. So how long is it going to take for money for those activities to reach the ground? As soon as we get the disposition on the uh, decision, uh, the funding and release of the funding, then... Uh, and that's still being held up because of determining whether or not uh, the TVPA is going to continue to affect them? Yes, sir. And well, that, that's, that's, that's not acceptable. Uh, is there fiscal year 2018 money that is being reprogrammed out of the DRC, to your knowledge? Or uh, Secretary Nagy? I don't, I don't know, Senator. I, I can certainly check on it, but I Admiral, don't know. do you know if there is? No, but we'll double check the specifics and get back to you. Uh, has fiscal 19 money been approved for Ebola response activities? Uh, on the IDA account, uh, we're continuing to expend funding. Well, I'd like to, uh, not to dwell on it right now, but I'd like to get the administration's response to us about the Trafficking Victims Protection Act was meant not to ensure that countries, you know, were doing the right things in terms of making sure they weren't trafficking in persons, but it certainly wasn't meant to withhold money in a health emergency like this. That was never envisioned by the Congress, and I, I hope we can get to that. I know that some of us are offering language to make that clear for now and in the future. But in the interim, we can't wait for the, for the Ebola virus uh, to break out even more significantly before we respond to it. Let me ask you, Mr. Uh, Mr. Secretary, 
Uh, what effect did the cancellation of elections have in terms of further straining relations between Kinshasa and the disenfranchised communities and areas affected by Ebola? The uh, Eastern DRC wasn't that uh, significantly affected by the elections. The one that you're referring, sir, to the ones that were won by uh, Chisakati mm -hmm. that, that led to him. The, there was not any serious election, post-election violence there. Unfortunately, that had always been a disaffected region of the DRC. The population there for decades has been uh, very cynical about political developments. Luckily, President Chisakati is the first president to have actually visited now the Ebola region. He's been there several times to get the local authorities dynamized to confront it. So his image has really gone up since the inauguration and since his presidency. There, is there any impact about our endorsement of Mr. Chisakati's questionable victory had on the credibility and our ability to undertake the full range of Ebola-related uh, uh, activities in Eastern Congo? Uh, Senator, from my information and from talking to uh, Ambassador Hammer, it's, uh, it's been just the opposite. Uh, the United States image has uh, actually been much improved because uh, post-election, President Chisakati's popularity goes up and up. Yeah. Let me ask you this. On July 2nd, the DRC's Minister of Health, uh, Oli Laguna, resigned in protest over President Chisakati's decision to take over the Ebola response. By all accounts, she was an effective administrator, a good interlocutor. Uh, how does the resignation affect the Ebola response? Uh, you mentioned there will be a new health minister at some point, but when do we expect that to happen? Uh, and uh, why has this taken place when you have somebody who seemed to be working well in the job? Senator, my, my colleagues may be able to chime in also on the technical parts of this, but the president did not have confidence in the health minister. There was going to be a new one anyway, so he brought the whole Ebola issue to the presidency's office by appointing a coordinating committee. Uh, I think I, I mentioned, uh, headed by Dr. Moyembe, who has Ebola expertise going back to 1976. Mm -hmm. So right now, the Ebola is still being directed out of the presidency. And the truth be told, it's been going on for over a year, so the previous health minister has not been all that effective. Mm -hmm. So we, do, we didn't consider her effective or a good interlocutor. Uh, I think she was a good interlocutor, but as far as the, the, the results, I think, for the effectiveness speak for themselves. Sir. Last question. So we're all in with Shinshikati then? We're very guardedly optimistic, and if you would uh, like I have for the record, I'd be happy to submit a list of President Shinshikati's positive accomplishments since uh, assuming office, sir. Uh, that's not my question. We're all in with Shinshikati. For, for now, we are. Yeah. Yes, sir. All right. Thank you, sir. <laughs> Um, thank you, Chairman Graham, Ranking Member Kane, uh, for holding this important hearing. Uh, as we've all been discussing, the Ebola outbreak in Eastern DRC has now grown into the second worst such outbreak in history, uh, and this is not something we can afford to ignore. The combination of um, disaffection from the central government, uh, poverty, underdevelopment, chaos, uh, and distrust uh, makes this an exceptionally dangerous area um, in which to have a disease of this uh, potential lethality spreading. Um, this is, I think, an opportunity for us to again demonstrate the best of American leadership uh, by helping support and lead a multilateral effort to combat uh, what is a potentially global um, health and security threat. I do think it's a chance for us to mobilize our traditional allies as well as others like China um, who benefit from the international system 
and to strengthen our efforts um, to make the world more capable of fighting global pandemics. Uh, we've already seen this outbreak cross international borders, uh, and I think if we don't step up now and get ahead of this outbreak, there's a chance it could spread into even more countries, as our witnesses have testified. Um, I also think it's important we help the DRC uh, and other countries across the region build their resiliency and their capacity to resist further outbreaks. I think the question isn't where and when, um, excuse me, where and if, but when the next major Ebola outbreak uh, will occur. In 2014, I traveled to Liberia uh, and witnessed the suffering caused by Ebola firsthand and saw a genuinely inspiring, well-coordinated, multilateral effort where the United States played an absolutely essential role, but the Liberian people and their ministries and government did as well, as did many nonprofits uh, and uh, arms of the United Nations. Ultimately, many of us here uh, fought for an emergency spending package which amounted to more than $5 billion. Um, but those costs, both human and fiscal, were well beyond what they could have been had um, we really confronted it earlier um, as it grew. Um, and some of those funds, if I understand correctly, um, are still being used today to combat the current outbreak. Um, as I said, in 2014, that outbreak would not be the last, and certainly this won't either. Um, there is very promising developments, as you've said, in terms of two potential um, effective, widely usable vaccines. Um, but I think we need to prioritize investments in resiliency um, that will reduce the risks of the next outbreak. So let me ask if I could just a few questions. Um, first, we've got real tensions with China across a wide range of issues. Uh, but Assistant Secretary Naj, I'd, I'd be interested in whether you think combating pandemics is an area where we could actually uh, cooperate. There was some Chinese participation in the West African counter-Ebola efforts. Um, have we encouraged or engaged with the Chinese? Their hesitancy to step up and actually bear the costs and uh, challenges of a world leader, um, I think we should call to question. Uh, Senator, maybe some of my colleagues know uh, as to what extent, if we've had any discussions on the health side with the Chinese, but I absolutely support your proposition because there's no reason why we cannot work together with them in those areas where, where we can. Obviously, we do have you know, trade and other competition with them uh, throughout the world, especially in Africa, but there certainly can be areas of cooperation like in health. Um, I think the global health security agenda is something um, that deserves a few minutes of focus. It's a partnership of 64 countries. Um, there are stakeholders across you know, CDC, USAID, NIH, over the last five years, there was a billion dollars uh, in GHSA funding um, that has supported efforts to build global health capacity to effectively combat infectious disease. Ambassador, excuse me, Admiral Zemer, my, my understanding is that this pool of funding expires in September. Um, if funding for GHSA isn't maintained at current levels in FY20, will all the agencies you represent be able to maintain um, current global health security programming or will you be required to scale back operations either at CDC, AID, or at state? Senator, thanks for your recognition of the significance of the global health security agenda. Uh, and yes, uh, the funding that got that started, the $1 billion, uh, came from uh, the original uh, supplemental. Mm -hmm. uh, the global health security agenda is part of this administration's priority. There is funding in the current budget while modest, it, it allows us to continue the program. How modest, and how does it align I, with the need? Uh, I'll have to get back to you on the specific budget uh, 
but I'll, I'll take the fact that you described it as modest to suggest that it is well below what may be necessary to sustain robust investment in resiliency in the face of potential pandemics. Yes, sir. And I think your other point that you made earlier, there's an expectation of burden sharing, other countries stepping up to the plate. Mm -hmm. In terms of contributions to the current Ebola outbreak right now in uh, DRC, mm -hmm. the government of China has contributed $1 million. One. One million, yes, sir. Hasn't the WHO said that funding for Ebola response needs to triple um, and that their most recent estimate was there needs to be a total investment of about $320 million to get ahead of the virus? Yes, Senator. The good news is that we have a plan coming together, okay, that has specifically uh, identified uh, $384 million. We can get you the figure to move the health response through the end of the year. Right. The good news is... It also is built on four other components, pillars, if you will. The latter one is a $70 million call for uh, country preparedness. For the first time, we're going to have a comprehensive picture of the projected requirements in terms of this funding, this Ebola response. The good news this morning, the World Bank made an announcement that they're going to provide $300 million. So with our $36 million, plus what the UK has uh, committed, and we're seeing a gradual uptick in some of the other countries, there is uh, an expectation that we will be able to uh, move forward with the current uh, uh, plan. That's very encouraging. I'll, I'll just say that um, the United States has now for decades been the principal, the leading funder of um, um, public health um, challenges on the continent. Um, at the same time that China has eclipsed us uh, as the largest trading partner, the largest investor on the continent. They are present in literally every country I've been to on the continent. Um, they have expanded their footprint and, frankly, their extractive relationships with a number of countries. I um, will be pressing to see them step up to some of this responsibility, the idea that they're investing one million and we're investing tens if not hundreds of millions um, strikes me as an opportunity for us to partner. Thank you for your support on that. Um, can I ask a, a last question, Dr. Wolf um, and uh, Admiral Zemer or, or Assistant Secretary Naj, if you have any, about um, the decision to allow U.S. government personnel um, either close to or not close to the hot zones. Um, one of the things that really turned the tide in Ebola was the uniform U.S. Public Health Service um, setting up a facility uh, right at the edge of the Monrovia Airport to guarantee that public health workers in Ebola treatment units, if they contracted Ebola, would get prompt and effective treatment. That was a key piece. The deployment of US military testing labs out into the field into remote areas so that people didn't have to come into the capital to confirm whether they had loss of fever or Ebola or something else. Um, where are we in terms of allowing either CDC or other US personnel to actually be engaged on the ground? Um, and what, if any, recommendation have you made and what do you think we should be doing? Yes, Senator, for the past year, we've deployed 200 people to support the outbreak in, with the Ministry of Health in Kinshasa, in Goma, in Geneva, and in surrounding countries. So we do have extensive activities there. It's true, we've not been able to go directly into the outbreak zone because of security concerns, and we defer to state. We are under chief of mission authority in countries, and they determine when we can, where we can deploy. One thing I'd like to highlight is in the recent case in Goma, we were able to deploy directly into the outbreak and we were able to provide on the ground real-time strengthening of the response. And are you deployed in places like Burundi, South Sudan, 
um, in the region that may not have the resiliency that Uganda does, where you previously were described as if it gets into South Sudan, given the chaos there. Yes, we have country offices in South Sudan, uh, Uganda, and Rwanda, and we've augmented those to work on preparation activities with those countries. Assistant Secretary, you look as if you could add to this. Yes, yes, indeed. Um, the problem is not with Goma, Avesi, or Kinshasa, but it is with Beni and Bunya. Right. And given the dynamics of the situation and how it changes day to day, we have a very careful policy under Chief of Mission, under Ambassador Hammer, where the uh, regional security officer, diplomatic security, looks at the proposed travel, evaluates the, uh, the threats, and then gives their blessing or recommends against it. Just like we were talking earlier about the CDC person just receiving permission today to shadow the, uh, the UN overall coordinator. Um, it was not an easy uh, decision and the whole emergency action committee had to take a look at it. Uh, because of all of the armed groups, there's one ISIS-linked terrorist organization operating in, in the Kivu. So it really is a case-by-case -case basis and how much has the situation changed. Unfortunately, as you said, sir, the West Africa situation was so different because of accessibility. Do you have any sense how many Americans are in this immediate area who are there, perhaps through Samaritan's Purse or Save the Children or um, uh, Doctors Without Borders? I don't have an exact number, but I can certainly find out because I know that there are some that are not under Chief of Mission Authority. Because there certainly were in West Africa, literally hundreds exactly. of Americans deployed. Admiral, did you have any closing thoughts on what is no. the most important thing we're not doing that we should be doing to get ahead of this? The, uh, the ideal situation would be to get the CDC personnel on the deck. We all support that. And I just want to echo what uh, uh, Ambassador said, that uh, we are working very hard with the Ambassador and the RSO to look at places that we can flex. The fact that we're in Goma today with a robust CDC and a USAID team reflects a forward-leaning strategy. And uh, just within the last couple of weeks, they've uh, extended the curfew so the teams can get out and operate. So this is a ongoing uh, issue. It's appreciated, and uh, we're doing everything we can to make the right uh, uh, assessment in terms of getting our folks in the field. Great. I just want to thank all of you. I really appreciate your testimony, and I appreciate the patience of the chairman and my colleagues on the committee. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's been great. Uh, um, one follow-up question. I'll turn it over to my colleagues. Generally speaking, do you think with the current resources and engagement that we've got a handle on this? Dr. Wolf? Well, Currently, the outbreak is not under control, and what we need to do is increase the core public health interventions, rapid case, you know, case identification, so rapid isolation. And we don't have contact. a handle. So we need to improve these core public health okay. interventions. It continues to expand, and we yeah. continue to have cases. Admiral? Yeah. The current plan, focusing in on the health response, has brought in aspects on how to improve our community engagement how to improve the political interaction and the security, as well as perimeter support. Uh, so uh, the jury is still out on whether or not this new effort, this international combined effort, will uh, deliver the progress that we need. It, right now, I'm optimistic that we have okay. uh, 
mechanisms in place to move us forward. Much improved over where we were six months ago. Mayor I would say that aspect we do have a very firm handle on is our policymaking process back here and the number and the quality of people we have deployed in the field who are working not only on the response efforts as best we can under the conditions, but also to involve more of the, uh, the international community um, by broadening and diversifying the, the funding sources going forward. And my perspective, Senator, is more on the governance issue. What they desperately need is positive governance and a professional military. And if Chisicati can succeed in that, it will take years, not months. But that would flip the Democratic Republic of Congo from being a perennial area of instability to actually exporting stability for a change. Do you think that's remotely possible without American leadership? Sir, I, I guarantee you American leadership is there. Um, our ambassador is fully engaged with the president, with but his government. Wasn't. So I'm, I am guardedly optimistic, sir. Okay, thank you. If I could just ask one uh, follow-up, uh, Ambassador Naj, you mentioned the ISIS connection and one of the reasons, just briefly, and I want to get into it because from the security standpoint, it's important uh, uh, Senator Menendez and, and Chairman Risch did a hearing in this room earlier this morning about the current military authorizations against al-Qaeda and ISIS. We were talking a lot about it. There was an attack in April. DRC soldiers were killed in parts of the country where Ebola has been very widespread. Um, I guess it was the Allied Democratic Forces claimed responsibility, but then ISIS also claimed responsibility, and the ADF says, or at least is saying, that they want to have more of, a, of an ISIS tie. So this, this obviously is the security complicator of getting our people in place. It's not just the health risk. It is now also the risk of, of these groups with ISIS connection. Give us an assessment of ISIS activity. Is that... Uh, you know, a group in name only that isn't particularly effective? Is the uh, ADF really connected to ISIS? Share that with us. A bit. Obviously, I think we could uh, provide more facts in a different setting, but in this setting, I can say that the ADF is the one, is the single one of the many armed groups in that area that has affiliated with ISIS. ISIS has embraced them. Uh, there are potentials for exchanges with other ISIS uh, groups, individuals in the area receiving resources. But the ADF is a, is, is a rather bizarre group because they don't range much beyond their territory because of the ethnic identity, and they don't specifically target uh, Ebola efforts. It just happens that if they're undertaking a, a violent campaign that people involved in the, in the Ebola campaign could get caught up in that. So uh, it, it is definitely a group worth watching. And, and as I said, I think we could provide additional details in a different setting, sir. Thank you. Thank you all. You represent our country very well. And uh, we'll, we're here to help. I appreciate you, your knowledge and level of uh, attention to this. And if we're successful, it'll be because of your efforts. And if we are not successful, it won't be because you didn't try. So we'll hold the record open to Friday for any further comments or questions. Thank you.